hi, this is not Arnold, but you should still listen to the 430 Movie podcast at 430movie.com. It's really fun. You'll like it. If you like Star Trek, you'll love Inglorious Trekspurts, in which our Trekspurts, Mark A. Altman and myself, Darren Docterman, talk Trek every Saturday, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're a Star Wars fan, check out the Electric Surge Network's new podcast, The Rebel and the Rogue, in which two diehard Star Wars fans discuss a galaxy far, far away with special guests every week. We would be honored if you would join us. And welcome back to Best Movies Never Made, the podcast where we explore interesting and infamous movies that never made it to or through production. As always, I am your co-host, Josh Miller, and with me is Mr. Steven Scarlatta. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How about you, Steve? Can't complain. That's always good. (laughs) Uh, And today we are talking about an unmade project that, who knows, could get made at some point because it kind of seems to resurface every few years, (laughs) and that is At the Mountains of Madness, that Guillermo del Toro is just determined to make happen, um, make happen for a lot of money. Uh, we have a script here. It's written by him and Mr. Matthew Robbins, with whom he's collaborated on a lot of things, uh, specifically Mimic and Crimson Peak. Um, we'll get into that, but let's introduce our two guests who are going to join us on this journey today. We have Jesse Miller- Merlin and Rebecca McKendry. Hello. Hello. Um, I really want to call you Doctor Professor Rebecca McKendry. You know is what? That, I'll take or that. Professor Doctor. It. It's I, I don't even make my students call me that, but you can totally go for it here. Um, you might know uh, Becca. She is a filmmaker, a professor, a podcast host herself. Yeah. Uh, Shockwaves, one of our favorite podcasts, and you just started a new one with Fangoria. Yeah, right? Yeah, we have um, Nightmare University with Fangoria now, and and our first episode features Stephen and Josh, where we take a um, a deep dive into the aquatic horrors of 1989. Which is also why we are having Becca on this episode. Is it's not quite aquatic horror, but Lovecraft just in general. He's usually likes aquatic-y things coming on land. Yeah, it's definitely my jam. Like yeah. anything that's in the water, crocodiles, fish, aquatic bugs, Lovecraft, I'm down for all of them. Uh, and you have a new movie that you directed that's about to air soon, I need a right? a lifetime movie. Yeah. Um, which Joe Bob Briggs has noted that if you want the current exploitation films, you go to Lifetime. So um, It has the best <laughs> title. That wasn't the original no, title. No, you just changed it. No, we shot under one title, and then we are given another title, and then we were given another title during international sales, and then they have settled on Psycho Granny. I, I'm um, a fan of that title. Which is the most exploitation title you can, <laughs> but um, they, don't, they don't use the horror word over there. They call them domestic thrillers, so it's a domestic thriller with a great body count yeah nice. <laughs> awesome. so yeah um and jesse is an actor extraordinary yeah. and you know what i just realized something this was not intentional but you have acted in something for all three of us i feel very i have to say <laughs> i feel very blessed i i love these people and i've i've had the pleasure of reading all three of your words of scripts from all three of you uh, stevens beyond the gates uh, 12 Deadly Days with Josh and a, the incredible um, All the Creatures Were Stirring feature I did with Becca. So yeah. I'm in I'm in excellent company. <laughs> oh, 
great. Uh, and, and Jesse, and I'm also, a big uh, Lovecraft nerd. Yeah, I gotta you, say, I, uh, we'll I post some pictures of it uh, on Instagram and such. But Jesse brought a bunch of his uh, yeah. vintage paperbacks. It's true. I've even got a couple from the '40s that have outstanding art. But um, no, I, I grew up with this. I, I actually was listening to a radio show in the 90s called At the Mountains of Madness, which is where I got a lot of my goth industrial music education between <laughs> 2 and 6 a.m. on Saturday nights uh, doing the things you do when you're 16. And um, and that's where I fell in love with Lovecraft. There would often be ambient music over readings of Poe and Lovecraft. And it's probably the first time I heard At the Mountains of Madness, Call of Cthulhu, a lot of the big ones. And, uh, and I have a, a great fondness for it. As problematic a figure as he is... Um, my grandfather, who was also a writer and uh, a union organizer for, for writers back in the day, and he was blacklisted later, he uh, corresponded with Lovecraft and actually met him. And I wish I have yet to find any letters to prove this, but like Lovecraft was very generous with his time and his talents and, mm-hmm. and, and mentored a lot of young writers. And I think when they met, it didn't go well. I think his, uh, his issues, I don't know, my grandfather was rather swarthy, you know? So it's, it's interesting. I think he was much easier to deal with Lovecraft was in person or rather in correspondence than in person Yeah, when they met in New York. Well, I always thought it worked out well for Lovecraft as far as uh, his work still being palatable because he was like super racist. Super misogynistic as well, xenophobic. Yeah, just like the whole gamut of everything that you don't want to be. Lovecraft kind of cornered that. That's true. And so um, the fact that we, he's one of the people that we are able to kind of say, yeah, you know, he was kind of a dick, but we're still going to read his stuff. Um, Like we can separate the man from the artist a little bit more with him for some reason. And I think what I was going to say, I think it helps is that a lot of his stuff, because like, you know, he had a big problem with like race is mixing and he was the kind of super racist that like also just hated other white people mm-hmm. like the Dutch and stuff like yeah across the board he but, was just kind of an asshole but rather than like writing a book that now we couldn't possibly read about like races mixing mm-hmm. he was about people mixing races with like fish people and stuff like that so it's it's subtextual but yeah and and yet at the same time so kind of confusing and and ambiguous you know he's deeply anti-semitic and then falls in love with a jewish woman and marries her and they spend a lot of their time arguing about how many jews can be invited to a dinner party versus aryans you know and and stuart and i because we've been trying to develop a lovecraft um kind of a biographical stuart gordon project together is he tells this great story about about his wife calling him out about he's you know railing against the jews and she says she stops him at one point and says um howard i'm jewish and he looks at her and he says you are not you are mrs howard phillips lovecraft <laughs> it's just so he was i don't think he understands how that which is works so, it's so sad because actually some of his happiest and most productive times is when they were together yeah and when he went back to providence is when he really fell apart you know uh, went back to his spinster aunts and left his happy married life in New York. Mm. Yeah, I don't know what. Uh, clearly, his genes weren't great. He's got a lot of insanity in his family. Yeah. Um, that comes out a bit. Yeah, mm. just, yeah. just a bit. Um, yeah. When when did you guys first stumble upon at the mountains of madness? We don't normally talk about necessarily the adaptation mm-hmm. aspect of things, but I think for something like Lovecraft, especially because, um, well, for those who don't know, Jesse, you kind of really kicked on the scene when mm-hmm. you were in Stuart Gordon's Reanimator the Musical, yep. which is an excellent, excellent, excellent play. Oh, if, thank I you. I hope you guys do it again and, and more people get to see it. And that's when I Jesse. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. That's, that opened the whole world of the, horror uh, to me, yeah. The headless villain of the play. But I think for a lot of people, like 
our age at least, I really became aware of Lovecraft because of the movie Reanimator, because it was H.P. Lovecraft's right. Reanimator. Eventually, I read the story and was like, oh, this is nothing like the story <laughs> at all. Um, and there have been so many adaptations of Lovecraft's work that really just kind of take the basic idea of it and then just do something else. Like, I know a lot of people will often say the most authentic Lovecraft movie isn't even a Lovecraft movie, and that's John Carpenter's uh, In the Mouth of Madness. Which is one mm. of the ways that I first found it. Like, yeah. I'd seen Reanimator when I was a kid, but I never made the Lovecraft connection because I was, like, seven, and I was just, like, cool, talking head. Like, even the sex stuff didn't read to me the first time I saw it. Um, but I came across Lovecraft through two means, um, John Carpenter and then reading interviews with him in Fangoria where he talked about how um, the Lovecraftian infused nature of it. And then the biggest one for me was through D&D because um, mm. I was I definitely um, did that a lot in high school and still do. Um, but there was one of the editions of the Dungeons and Dragons manual included all of these different Lovecraftian creatures, which later got pulled out. Um but I remembered looking at those for the first time and going, Cthulhu, what are you, sir? Because it doesn't feel like anything else. And you're like, Shagath, where have you been all my life all of a sudden? Um, because it does not feel like anything else in the manual. You know, you're looking at ogres and witches and giant books with teeth that want to eat you. And then suddenly this thing that resembles nothing you've ever seen before or the old ones and things like that. And um, that's when I really started investigating who was Cla Lovecraft was and started burning through his works. Well, as quick as, quick as you can. They're kind of dense. Yeah. But um, working my way through uh, as much as I could read. And that was probably senior year of high school. Mm. Yeah. Oh, right on. That's how I kind of... I mean, I found them through Reanimator because mm -hmm. of H.P. Lovecraft's name and Fangoria... But it was, I had asthma, so I couldn't do gym class. So I stumbled a, upon here, here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the H.P. Lovecraft book in the library. And I couldn't read a lot of it, but I, I, I read The Outsider. And, and I was an outsider, so it was like perfect. Mm -hmm. And so I spent a long time on that story. <laughs> That's all through uh, Stuart Gordon and Fangoria is how I got my whole education on Lovecraft. Because Fangoria also, in the 90s at some point, did like, a thing on him about all of his books and a bio mm -hmm. on him and that's where I started learning and started becoming familiar with his stories but not reading them but just through those through Fangoria and yeah. those write-ups but yeah it was very fascinating though yeah and I guess I don't know how you guys feel feel really of the actual adaptations that have been made uh Gordon's Dagon is probably the one that is the most faithful as a real adaptation and and, mm -hmm. and, and most attempting to capture the legitimate spirit of Lovecraft. Yeah, I would think so too. Um, where it does have this crazy, like you actually can feel Innsmouth in that, mm. and the creatures actually feel like they're fish people. Mm -hmm. um, which, and it's the only one um, that I've seen that I don't think has kind of a silly note with it. Like mm. I don't find that movie oh. to be silly. I find it to be wonderful. Um, and and. Dennis Paoli um, really kind of captured everything that I would want captured and kind of the just being submerged into this weird town aspect mm -hmm. of it. Whereas some of the other ones that I've seen attempt to do Cthulhu or Dagon or any of the other kind of fishy gods, they there's always a note of kind of it, it just doesn't hit. And so there's this level of like uncanny valleyness with it where you don't know what you're looking at, but mm -hmm. it doesn't feel real enough to be conveyable as a, mm -hmm. as a film. Well, that brings us up to at Mounds of Madness because I think... Even though, you know, he had to build a lot upon 
the actual would you call it a novella? It's not. It's pretty short. It's for short. A yeah, novel. Um, I still think Del Toro was definitely trying to do something very faithful to the structure and atmosphere of Lovecraft's story, which is also. Mm-hmm. So at the Mountain Man, just a little background for people who don't know, uh, Lovecraft wrote this in 1931, though it was initially rejected by the publishers he sent it to, and was finally accepted uh, in 1936 by Astounding Stories, which did what most things did at the time, kind of serialize it over several issues. Um, and this is the, I think, by far the longest thing Lovecraft wrote. Mm-hmm. It's kind of, even though it's short, it was sort of his it in a way mm. where it was like he dumped all his favorite stuff into one story. And it intersects with a lot of other stories. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, correct me if I'm wrong, they don't actually identify the hero's name. They name him in another story. Because mm-hmm. like right. King, he liked to kind of have a shared world with all the stuff. So William Dyer being our hero, I think, never gets identified as the narrator. Well, that's common to a lot of his stories, too, is, like, the actual character of the voice you're reading is a cipher. We Like, Call of Cthulhu, we know n- almost nothing about the guy except his own terror mm-hmm. who's telling you the story, <laughs> you know. And, like, at the time, too, this was 1936, uh, and, like, most of the world had been fairly mapped at this point, but Antarctica was one of the big kind of like, I mean, I think everyone knew that it was just icy nothingness, mm-hmm. but for fiction writers, it was still kind of exciting, the idea of like, well, who knows? We don't know Maybe what's- Maybe there's some huge mountain range yeah, there. Yeah, exactly. You know? And it was actually being explored right at this same time period, which I know because my elementary school was named, um, the guy who uh, first mapped Antarctica came from my hometown. Really? So yeah, Richard Byrd um, was right. like a huge hero in Winchester, Virginia, where I'm from. We don't have much, but we have Platte yeah, Klein and we've got Richard Byrd. For, for wow. people who That's don't know, got. Becca comes from like hill people, it, basically. It's, yeah, it's, um, we're becoming, we're slowly becoming more of DC, but yeah, it's Appalachia. Yeah. And, um, yeah, but I mean, we got Patsy Klein and we got Richard Byrd. Hey, that's cool. Um, who charted mm-hmm. Antarctica from 1928 to like 1931, maybe. So, like, right as Lovecraft would have been crafting this, this massive expedition of Antarctica was going on. And he mentions him a few times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, he's drawing from the most famous. Yeah. The most famous stories. Cool. There. The only person from my town was an actress who was on Nip Tuck. <laughs> <laughs> They're not building any statues of her that I'm aware of. I forget where I, where I stumbled upon it, looking him up. But I think one of the things that gave him the idea for it was he saw when he was a kid um, marks on seals, and he was wondering where do those marks come from, and that's what kind of started the seed of inventing the story. Like oh, seals, the animals. Yeah, the like seal. sharks are like carving yeah. like their names. <laughs> yeah. Like Marvin was here in the side of the seals. Well, yeah, he cool. fascinated over those markings on like what gave that to them, and then I yeah, that's what started the seed of this. And story. it kind of dovetails in from a post story as well. He he actually pulls the Antarctica ending from the the Gordon Pym story is it, they, they reference it mm-hmm. and also kind of even the shriek of the Shuggerths yeah is, oh, uh, is yeah. it dovetails in with Poe so and the title I think I didn't I looked it up I didn't realize it's from Lord Dunsany it's from a it's oh, from I a didn't poem know that. yeah 
Huh. I, I love how many times in the book he says the title. Yeah. <laughs> Brand awareness. Oh my gosh, yeah. Mountains of Men. Or I assume he was being paid by words. So we'll just work that title in a few too many times. That's what I've always yeah. felt about Lovecraft. I'm like, this guy loves adjectives and adverbs. Oh my gosh, yeah. No, it's always like, you know, a man will walk into a building and we're going to spend six paragraphs describing the way his shoes are tied yeah. before he can enter. And yeah, that's that's just Lovecraft. And like also, the monsters are always completely indescribable. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then Which Several pages later, the greatest of... cop out ever to make like your signature style. I was like, I don't have to figure out what it looks like. Although that's, I think, one of the weirdest things about at the Mountains of Madness mm-hmm. is he goes into great detail about what yeah. the monsters look like. And I think across the board, that's been one of the reasons that Lovecraft has been kind of difficult to bring to screen. At mm. least some of his less kind of reanimator, color out of space stories, mm-hmm. because you do have this creature, and he'll be like, Oh, it's huge. Well, what does it look like? It's undescribed. Yeah. If you and look then, at it, you go mad. You go mad. And so then that's it. And it becomes like a bird box thing where, well, we can't show anything. So, and you're going to go crazy if you look at it. So, how do we even approach that? Well, well like, really quick before we get into it, um, I was telling them earlier when this story first came out, astounding, astounding stories would get mail to talk about the previous stories. And Mountains of Madness got not very good reviews. So almost like how John Carpenter's The Thing is his masterpiece, but when it came out, it got these bad reviews. And one review, just really quick, it says, At the Mountains of Madness would have been very good if Lovecraft hadn't overdone it by describing the walls and murals, etc. The ending was altogether boring and not up to average. Please, let's not have another such failure go under the alias of a serial. And and this one quick one, At the Mountains of Madness was poor until the last installment when it ended only fair. (laughs) That's George Griffith, Monument Street, Portland, Maine. (laughs) (laughs) So that's all from 1936 Astounding Stories. Oh, my gosh. Now I hope George Griffith's grandkids hear this podcast somehow and be like, oh, man. My grandpa was Apparently he sold it for more than any other story, though. Mm -hmm. It was like $300, you know. And it is, it is very dense on the descriptions. Like, yeah. I do have to say, we mm-hmm. learn a lot about that alien city. <laughs> it's also very political. Like, it feels like one of the Star Wars movies where it's like, okay, so we have the old ones, and then we've got the Yogshagas, but they were created as slaves, and then they overthrow because they were worshiping this other god over here. And the whole thing, like, it's a big political structure with badass aliens and gods and fishy things, but it's still, it gets more political than some of them. Well, and that's kind of the interesting too then about adapting this into mm. a script is what do you do with that stuff and we will find out <laughs> what Robbins and Del Toro did with that. Um, Steve, do you have any other information kind of leading up? Oh, um, pretty much. Um, it's not a crazy history. It's uh, after Del Toro had a hit with Blade Two, made thirty three million dollars opening weekend. Um, right after that, this got announced immediately that he was going to do Mountains of Madness, but then. From that point on, he was attached to like 800 projects and made Hellboy, Pan's Labyrinth, Hellboy 2. And then he was attached to The Hobbit. He worked on that for two years until he quit. And, oh, here's an interesting one. An article came out in 2008 saying that he was booked into until 2017 because he had Frankenstein, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Slaughterhouse-Five, and Drood to make pretty much after the Hobbit. He was doing Drood? Yeah. Yeah. (gasps) He had a lot. It's not, I can't even go through it all. And it's insane. And so he quit the Hobbit after all the delays. And then that's when this got announced immediately. Uh, Del Toro 
and James Cameron ready to climb mountains of madness. And that was July 28th, 2010. Well, we've liked to note on this podcast, too, because uh, Del Toro, maybe more than anyone else, I think, gets a lot of crap for being attached to so many movies. Um, but most of the time, the movies you're trying to make don't get made. Yeah. So any mm-hmm. filmmaker is constantly True. attached to stuff. It's just that you usually don't hear about them. Like, I'm attached to two different things right now. I'm on four No one right cares now. what I'm doing, so yeah. <laughs> no. it's not in The Hollywood Reporter. I'm attached to four right now, and the only person who is even remotely concerned with that is my agent. <laughs> no one else gives a shit. And, like, four of them may happen, one of them may happen, none of them may yeah. happen, and I'll be attached to three more things by end of summer, and that's just kind of the way that the system works. And mm-hmm. Del Toro's a guy who keeps getting hot. Like, it's mm-hmm. so funny because it's, I mean, granted, this is a movie that was going to be rated R and cost like $150 million. Um, but it seems like he'll make this, like, movie that wins a zillion Oscars and everybody loves it. And then he'll do kind of a genre-y movie for the studios that, like, doesn't make a ton of money. And then it's like no one wants to give him money again mm-hmm. until he has to go off and win a bunch more Oscars. Um, but he's definitely a guy who keeps getting hot every few years, and then I think they just report everything he's even had a meeting about that gives this impression that uh, you know he's overextending himself, or I don't know what fans are worried about. Um, I'm sure he would make all these movies if he somehow had the ability to do so. Oh, it seems like well, one of the big blow-ups had to do with the studios trying to force him to do PG-13. Yes. Yeah. For $100 million, yeah. you can only get the PG-13 well, rating. He, and he walked, he didn't want to do a yeah. non-R film. Yeah, it had to be R. It was going to be in 3D, and this is right after... Right, that's 3D, what's crazy yeah. about James Cameron coming on right after Avatar. Like, to have mm. James Cameron... The studios wanted um, uh, the cat from... What's his, I have it right here. The and studios didn't want Tom Cruise, believe it or not. They wanted the guy from Wanted, um, McElroy. Oh. I mean, he's more appropriate he looks yeah. character. I don't oh, know how totally. much I buy, especially at- Tom Cruise is a geologist. In 2010, yeah. Tom Cruise is this like young, <laughs> ambitious- 1930s geologist. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, I love Tom Cruise. I mean, that was- <laughs> I think, I think Diary of the also- Story is like in his 50s, though. Yeah. Well, I think he's true. a little oh, yeah. He definitely not, doesn't seem that way- in the script, he no. has a young, pregnant wife. Oh, no. um, but I mean, I, I love Tom Cruise as well. But it, it just, I could tell he's now officially getting too old, though. In the Mummy, he just hmm. did because there's a part where Russell Crowe calls him young man, and I'm like, <laughs> Tom Cruise is older than Russell Crowe. <laughs> Granted, he looks better, right. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, I'm like, you know, you can you can star in movies. I'm not saying you can't. You're still in much better shape than I'll ever be. Just don't act like you're young. <laughs> don't have them call you young man. Let's drop that line. And I get why the studios were nervous about this one. I mean, it, oh, yeah. it is pretty freaking out of left field. And I mean, just looking, I mean, the studios, Del Toro even said they didn't like it because it didn't have a love story right. to it. And there's no hero. I mean, mm-hmm. like yeah. no one in this story is the hero at all. And it ends on such a bleak note. But at the same time, these are not treadable it's nothing that we're retreading it's no concepts like what genre is this what subgenre is yeah. this and the only thing that you can kind of point to is go maybe creature feature and really gory and those are not necessarily bankable mm. commodities in the film world i mean I, well Actually, we'll, we'll loop back to that once uh, yeah, we've talked about the script there's something else to go back to yeah. at the ending but really quick um liam neeson was going to be lake Tom Cruise, as we said, Dyer, and then Ron Perlman oh, wow. was going to be like my favorite character in the script, Larson. Larson. Nice. 
Yeah, so that that's makes all, sense. That was all that was down for uh, for cast. And when so. we read sections of the script, uh, Jesse will be playing Dyer, and Rebecca will be playing Lake. Lake. I, I did want to mention, it just occurred to me, just sitting here, actually my introduction to this story was years before I really got into Lovecraft because uncharacteristically it is the most detailed description of a of an alien. Mm-hmm. It made, um, the elder things are included in Barlow's Guide to Extraterrestrials. I don't know if you ever had wow. that as a kid, but it's an incredible art book full of like, your favorite monsters from great science fiction books. And so there's a whole couple of pages about elder things. That's it's an incredible piece of art and I, a description of it. I just bought that today, no joke, this morning oh, because fun. I saw that. the elder thing yeah. drawing it. <laughs> and I was <laughs> like, this is beautiful. And and star-headed really... creatures. Yeah, yeah. I just, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. 10 bucks on Amazon. Oh, I, wow. I just picked it up this morning. Oh, it's beautiful. I also, when I was um, doing the research on this, it looked like one time that the studio was saying it was too similar to Prometheus. Well, well, let's get back to that. Yeah, we'll we'll get back to that. I have some stuff on that, too. Uh, All right, well, let's just, let's dig right in. So, the script begins October 1939 in Hobart, Tasmania. We're looking at an aboriginal fishing boat. out throwing some nets and whatnot, when they spot a derelict ship just floating out there with the words Arkham on the side. Then we cut to the Australian government. Some sailors are exploring the derelict ship. Uh, They wade through tilting corridors, stopping to gawk at a cluster of mummified dogs fused onto a hatchway. I like that description. Um, They discover, remember again, this is 1939, that this ship was on the expedition for Miskatonic University from 1930. So already we're like, what's going on? Um, They find a door that's locked. They bash their way in. There's a dirty, bearded, wild man, is how he's described, locked in there with a dead man who's glued to the bulkhead. Uh, The wild man attacks them with an axe. They shoot him. And then weirdly, his reaction to being shot is, a gun? You shot me. My blood. I'm back. Uh, And then we cut back onto the mainland where a British consul's riding in a car with a guy named Captain Starkweather. And we learn that Starkweather is about to take another expedition. Um, Mere moments, he's going to go on an expedition to Antarctica. And the consul wants him to talk to the wild man because they, you know, wondering what happened before. Uh, They haven't figured out the wild man's name yet. He goes in to talk to him. Uh, While he's talking to him, there's a little bit where the wild man looks in the mirror. uh, It says, The stranger twitches in horror as something moves beneath his skin. A faint, jagged tissue opens. His fingers elongate and undulate, suddenly devoid of cartilage or bone. In a brutal, sudden shock cut, his face and chest extrude into a mass of hungry, wet pseudopods that whip wildly into the air. And he's like, Did you see it? Did I change? I can't trust my eyes my mind if i change you must kill me or i will infect the world uh, and at this point the guy identifies himself as william dyer and is uh keeping this kind of very popular at the time in fiction seemed to be that all like weird fiction needed to be a guy telling another guy the story mm-hmm. that then you're reading i don't know why that device was so popular um but del Toro's keeping that here so then we go into a flashback back to miskatonic university which is in america for those who don't know um in 1930 where a group of distinguished scientists are getting ready to go to antarctica they got the press there you know um and i guess just there's a lot of characters oh, in yeah. this script so mm-hmm. There's our main, our kind of main scientists are Atwood, Peabody, Fowler, Dyer, and Lake. 
Um, I, there's a lot of things and dynamics going on with them. In the interest of time, I'm basically just going to skim over all of that. Mm-hmm. It's not super plot important. I guess all you really need to know is um, Lake is Dyer's like protege. Lake is older. Um, Dyer is kind of an up and coming young guy, and uh, Atwood is religious. That comes in later. Um, there's also a guy named Bob and his younger brother Pip are like cameramen who are going to be recording the whole thing uh, for posterity. Uh, it's also here we learn that Dyer has a wife, Anne, who is pregnant, who is not happy that her husband is going off to Antarctica for months. Next problematic uh, thing, only female in the entire movie, yes. and she's on screen for maybe 90 seconds? Complaining. Complaining. Complaining, trying to stop her husband from following his dream. Nag, nag, yeah. nag, and then she's off. Yep, <laughs> and she's gone. Uh, well, it's funny because she's like, don't go, and he's like, yeah, you're right, I should probably be here to watch my baby be born. So then he goes up to tell Lake that he's leaving and Lake kind of realizes he's trying to quit and seduces him by showing him um, a fossil they found that I think they found somewhere near Antarctica, but it's basically a big, crazy creature. Um, they identify it from the Precambrian era. Well, it's not the footprint, or is it the footprint, or is no, something else? No, it's like, like a, a big full like creature, creature thing. In the, like in the script, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's like a mutation. It could be avian. Well, as they know, yeah. like it's impossible. Nothing remotely as complex as this creature existed on Earth during the right, period right. they've carbon dated it to. Uh, and he's like, "All oh, right, who cares?" I think they like look out the window and he sees <laughs> his pregnant wife like wander away. It, I mean, I'm sure he said goodbye at some point, but in the movie, like, he doesn't even follow after. They just now it's still one more female character than is in the story. You that's, know. True. that's true. <laughs> that is true. Like... Um, one more female character that's in the, the thing. Yeah. Um, that is also true. <laughs> but so now we cut their... They're, uh, they're on the ship. We have a ship captain, Captain Douglas, who's a distinguished white beard. Um, we also meet... As <laughs> who would have been... Wait, was who was going to be Larson? Ron Perlman? Yes. Oh, uh, so perfect. Larson is described as a muscled, tattooed Canadian brawler. Uh, and his kind of buddy is Gunnarsson, a lanky blonde Dane who's in charge of the Husky team, the dog sleds. Um, we cut to New Year's Eve, 1931. Uh, and Captain Douglas gets a telegram that Dyer's wife and baby both died in childbirth. Uh, he tells this to Lake, and Lake says not to tell Dyer. He says nothing to him. Not now. I, I know him well, Captain. I'll take care of it in, in the right time. Trust me. So he's hiding stuff. Lake's uh, not really on the up and up. Um, and then, uh, let's read here, page 23, Jesse. Um, Are you going to do stage directions yeah, I'll as do well? Yeah, I'll do the, right. the blocking. So the Arkham plows through the thin ice crust. Thunk, thunk. Thunk, a rhythmic sound, like a heartbeat. Interior corridor, same. The empty corridors, thunk, thunk, thunk. All through the night we sailed on. Sailors of the past called this Finisterre, the edge of the world. Interior ship's laboratory, thunk, thunk, thunk. They believed that monstrous things lived in these waters. That whoever ventured further would fall off the face of the earth. Thunk. Thunk, thunk. Dyer lies face up in his bunk, fast asleep. The cabin shakes. Maybe that's exactly what we did. Suddenly on the soundtrack, Jesse Matthews, 1927, My Heart Stood Still fades in. Now we shift into a dream. Camera pulls back to reveal Dyer sitting placidly in a couch in his parlor. On the table radio, Jesse Matthews sings on. Smiling, Dyer looks into the adjacent room where Anne gently rocks a cradle. Keep in mind, he doesn't know she's dead. Uh, She smiles and half-closes the door. Now he sees only her shadow, 
and that of the cradle on the wall. He stirs a cup of coffee, but the spoon tumbles from his hand. As he picks it up, he notices snow on the floor. Removing one of the floorboards, he finds that the parlor rests on ice. Dyer stares. The shadows in the adjacent room distort, as does the song. The thing in the crib is festooned with squirming tentacles. A gust of wind tears the walls away, revealing a vast featureless snowscape, and on the far horizon, a boundless, jagged mountain range. I felt utterly alone and lost, alone in the whole wide world. In his shirt sleeves, Dyer stands in the middle of nowhere. White snow, white sky, and slow motion snowflakes swirl. Unfathomable silence all around me. And then, for the first time, I saw the dark man. A figure shrouded in a fur parka walks towards him. Cut to interior Dyer's cabin, night. Dyer opens his eyes, still lying in his bunk. He sits up, hands shaking. He pours a glass of water. And from that nightmare, I woke into a real one. He turns on a light and reacts. In the mirror, he sees that he is unshaven and thin with bony, long fingernails. And so basically what happens is he wakes up and it seems like time has passed. Uh, he goes out in the ship, and everyone else on the ship is, like, passed out, and the food they'd been eating is, like, rotting. Uh, we have no idea how much time passed or why. Um, uh, yeah, soup is congealed on their plates. Potatoes have sprouted. He goes up on deck just in time to see the arc. Basically, Arkham crash into Antarctica. Um, it's chaos. This real gross-sounding part that happens to the captain where glinting frost race across the Arkham spare, spars and lines. And in an instant, the captain's hands freezes to the rail. He struggles to pull it free. Oof. So, like, just impossibly fast, everything is freezing around them, and they get trapped in the ice. Uh, let's see. Um... Oh, yeah, there's another part to read, Jesse. So they look up. Larson says, Sweet Jesus, Carol and Joe, where the crackling fuck are we? At the Mountains of Madness, reads the blocking camera, executes a grand pan of a new world, never before seen by human eyes, a dreamlike range of mountains surround them. Sharp imperial peaks recede in jagged ranks, bathed in low, slanting sunbeams. Two distant volcanoes send smoke in a vault of plumish... Uh, Oh, into a vault of plumish sky. Uh, no sound from anyone, just clicking of Gedney's movie camera as he records everything like a man possessed. We cut to the black and white footage panning around the vast unknown landscape. The mountains before us surpassed anything in imagination. At 36,000 feet, they put Everest out of the running. Uh, and maybe just read all his dialogue. We don't need the blocking. <clears throat> Precambrian slate with plain signs of many other upheaved strata. But... At the very top, through the clouds, we could make out bizarre structures, unnatural, almost symmetrical. Sumner ventured the possibility of buildings, but back then that seemed impossible. What on earth could have built them? What could have lived in such a cold, dead place? The answer became evident soon enough. Nothing human. Nothing human at all. <laughs> I feel like we're listening to an old radio play. I know. <laughs> Um, how are we feeling about this so far? So far, I was into this. Like, I was like, oh, yes. And now we have kind of established, if you're looking at traditional script writing terms, we hit our new information mm. at the exact right point of now we have reached this place and our new information is crazy mountains and are those structures? And it was perfect, perfectly timed in the script. Yeah, and sometimes, like, a perfect example, I feel, was... Uh 
Andrew Stanton's John Carter of Mars adaptation, mm-hmm. where it's like it begins with like a narration and then a scene on Barsoom, and then we have the scene of like Edgar Rice Burroughs showing up and finding out that John Carter's dead, and then he's reading his journal, and then we kind of like finally get to the movie, and it's, yep. just, it's like too many prologues happening there. Um, but I like the way that Del Toro does this. It's like I think that would have been a cool opening with the Aboriginals finding the ship just mm-hmm. like drifting out there. Um, that That's a movie cliche I quite enjoy for some reason is when it's just like a Japanese fish, fishing junk and then they encounter something crazy, Godzilla maybe, out in the ocean. Well, it starts with such a bang with that axe to the guy's chest. Oh, yeah. It's very energetic. It almost felt Peter Jackson-ish mm. to me, too. Mm. It, really? It, it, yeah. it, the opening gets you, and especially when he's looking in the mirror and his face transforms. From that moment, I'm in. And right well, now we're 30 pages in and yeah. so much has happened. It's, uh, it's yeah. and, and all along. of this almost whole cloth not in the original story mm. and I gotta say Lovecraft is hard on sailors you know he really <laughs> just anybody on a boat is gonna have a hard time you know <laughs> yeah I wonder if he ever even went on a boat I don't know I mean he obviously lived on the ocean a, a good bit and I mean he was in a boating fishing town for much of it so I'm sure that he grew up around sailors yeah but yeah I don't know if he actually like ever became a fisherman himself that doesn't seem like his no. his jam by any stretch Well, because that's what I was saying before. It's like he does so much aquatic horror. He loves, like, tentacles on stuff. But almost none of it, like, really happens in the water. It's Mm -hmm. more like the water coming to you. Um, But carrying on with the story. Mm. um, So now they're trapped in the ice. uh, But they made it. Um, And Dyer notes that, like, they've... This previously was New Year's Eve. Now it's January 28th. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like points out but everyone thinks like oh you know "Ah, you must be crazy how do you know blah 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 they don't really believe it even though i think they all have like beards and stuff yeah and their watches are all spinning but they're still like there's nothing wrong Ah, sometimes i grow a full beard overnight that's not that crazy (laughs) um but so then they kind of go around and start investigating they're trying to hail the miskatonic on the radio but just over the radio all they get is like weird creepy unintelligible voices um and then there's kind of a cool sequence where uh, really our one actual truly aquatic bit of horror is where one of the guys, a guy's named Orendorf, um, puts on like an old timey diving suit, uh, you know, the kind connected to the hose. And he's like going down the boat because they've like jammed against the ice and he's trying to figure out the level of damage. Uh, and he finds down there uh, an eight-foot green ob- obelisk, intricately carved. The tip is crowned with five sharp cones incised with circles. Um, and then he, like, floats away and he discovers that there's, like, a whole... Basically, the entire ocean floor is covered in, like, hundreds of these stone obelisks. Um, and they start, like, pulling them up overboard trying to figure out what's going on. Meanwhile, Larson's knowing, like, we got hungry dogs. They smell meat somewhere. So him and Gunnarsson kind of go off and encounter uh, really our first, I guess you could call them monsters. They're penguins, but they're, like, (laughs) as tall as a person, albinos. Uh, They all stand motionless, just, like, staring at the mountains. Yeah, they're blind. (laughs) Messed Uh, up wings. They're sickly, translucent skin webbed with bluish veins. The wings are abhorrent, malformed and elongated, not unlike paws. The eyes are covered by thick, milky cataracts. Uh, And I think think Del Toro made one of these. So, yeah, at the LACMA, or was it the LACMA? 
Lacma? A couple of years yeah, ago, he did this yeah, big um, retrospective. All the stuff from his bleak yeah. house, right? Yeah, like he's so got cool. his, his crazy horror prop collection and plus a bunch of it from his movies. And so they did this massive display of all of his different props and figures and art pieces and kind of buried in the back. I didn't see that Was part. this like fucked up looking penguin and no wow. one really noticed it until somebody posted up a picture on socials and was like is this what I think it is and then everybody like blew up and was like holy yeah. crap we're staring at like a wow. prototype penguin oh, um, and it was it, it's exactly what it looked like where it was like this penguin but it didn't look like one and you could still see kind of the black and white aspect of it but it was discolored and it had lesions on it um, so yeah it definitely <laughs> it was it was a deformed penguin it was. Are, am I right? Black and white. Was he gonna? He wasn't gonna shoot black and white, was he? No, no. I think she meant the just, penguins. Yeah, the black penguin, and white. like the black oh, and white yeah, tuxedo like, sure. of a penguin. You could still see it, bit, so yeah. it wasn't a hundred percent albino. Like you could still see that it was a penguin. Oh, um, but it was. It was definitely faded and mutated. Ooh. So you can probably find pictures of it. Yeah, online. we'll post some of that on yeah. Instagram. Um, but anyway, so they pull out uh, one of the obelisk monoliths, whatever you want to call it, uh, and they pop it open with a crowbar and inside they find the carcass of the same type of creature that Lake had the fossilized version of back at Miskatonic. Um, And then they set up a tent outside uh, off the boat like on the mainland and they started dissection and we have this little scene here. When extended, their membranes resemble serrated wings, seven feet long, tip to tip, suggesting an avian predator. Lake moves to another dead creature, pulls at the lid on what looks like a complex eye. Their multiple ocular globes are protected by a triple membraneous lid, probably marine in origin. Dyer's Dyer's rubber gloves and scalpel are wet with alien mucus. These five radiating lobes, they're all brain, do you think? Young man, I'm not even convinced that's the head. If it is, a cranial cavity of this size would indicate intelligence of a very high order. Fowler collects some of the green viscous liquid in a test tube. This species may be unique to Antarctica, a self-contained environment, an isolated population uh, like the marsupials. (laughs) The two-way radio crackles to life. A storm is kicking up. I want everyone back on board. Well, much as I would like to stay, I'll leave you gentlemen alone with your friends. Uh, And then Lake and Dyer continue with their uh, dissection. Um, Let's see. Uh, They realize all the specimens seem to have been killed with a weapon is kind of the interesting thing to discover because they're assuming, you know, this is just like an animal or whatever. It's like, whatever did this, I'm just glad it's gone. And then the scene ends with a camera pushes in on one of the eight specimens turned away from Dyer and Lake. The long sagging neck wound is slowly closing itself until the gray rubbery flesh is smoothed and healed over. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, Larson and Gunderson are still with the penguins figuring out that they're blind. Uh, They also realize that the penguins seem to be corralled in, like, the decaying remnants of what looks like a fence. Mm -hmm. And they're like, who the hell built it? Um, (laughs) Unseen by them, the penguins turn their heads, all of them at the same time. Dogs start barking. A peculiar piping sound reaches their ears. The dogs run away. Larson chases after them. Um, 
I'll just read this little bit of scene. Larson in the fog finds bright blood and clumps of fur in the snow. No, no, no! He hears a sad, long whimper. Half a dog pathetically drags itself towards him, trailing intestines, smearing the snow with clear pink fluid. Gunnarsson catches up as Larson falls to his knees. High in the mist, a dozen tendrils are waving like undersea protoplasm. More shrill piping sounds. The back of the dog is suddenly writhing sinew. Larson realizes that the intestines are pseudopods growing from the dog's body. They coalesce into crab-like claws. The creature growls and explodes into a mass of translucent knobs, shoot through ligaments, tendons, and coiling veins. The neck propels outward, growing a series of hungry mouths. A fleshy tongue attaches to Gunnarsson and lifts him up. The gun goes off. Uh, I think that scene would have been pretty cool. Yeah, that would have been a dope scene. So John Carpenter, yeah. Um, And meanwhile, back with the investigation, uh, Atwood says, I know that text. Oh, no, uh, one of the characters has run and gone off and gotten a leather-bound book uh, because he recognizes some of the symbols that are on the obelisk. Uh, It's like, Schwab's translation of the Necronomicon, 1875, a collection of pagan rubbish scribbled down by an 8th century Yemeni astrologer. So all Lovecraft fans obviously Mm -hmm. are quite familiar with the Necronomicon. Um, Which is, by the way, interesting because it's brought up in the original story, right? And they didn't bring it with them. So it's kind of cool that it's actually in this movie. They bring it along with them. Yeah. You know. Got to have your Necronomicon handy on the boat. Never know when you're going to need that thing. (laughs) Um, Meanwhile, Dyer seems to be the only one who's focused on the fact that they're in some kind of like time anomaly. He notes the ice encasing the ship is growing faster than we can melt it because weeks may be passing while we believe them to just be minutes. So I think we can, we're already seeing how maybe they were discovered in 1939, even though they left in 1930. Um, meanwhile, Lake does not care about any of this. He's like stoked with all this bad stuff going on because <laughs> at the top of the mountains of madness, there are like weird structure-like things. And he says, I see say they're buildings and he wants to fly up there and he's in charge of the mission so they do they get two planes there as they're loading them up um lake tells dyer to go get something from his stateroom and oops dyer stumbles upon the telegram explaining that his wife died <laughs> um lake gets or dyer gets mad at lake punches him in the face says he's not going to go on the planes um so two planes take off uh and dyer stays behind on the boat um and while they're flying over, there's like crazy mists everywhere. So it's plane A, plane B is how they describe it. Um, plane I think B is the one like hits, like basically they're in thick clouds and all of a sudden the clouds part and they smash into the mountain and they're like mm-hmm. leaking fuel everywhere. Um, they just barely manage to land. Uh, but one of the guy scientists named Sumner dies in the crash. Yeah, their landing gear like gets disintegrated. So yeah. that I assume would have been like a crazy scene in there. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh, there's a fun description of, as they're flying by, though, it says, the city by air. So Lake was right. The things at the top of the mountain are buildings. A broad valley covered in eons of ice, bristling with towers, spires, and rooftops. The scientists stare in awe at alien architecture, indescribably ancient and strange. The buildings vary in size, evidencing innumerable honeycombed compartments, wide ramps, and hanging terraces. Um, And let's see here. Uh, nightfall is coming, 
uh, and they're not quite sure what they do. You know, uh, this guy's injured. Back on the Arkham, the screw, uh, the crew spots Gunnerson and bring him into the infirmary because he got all screwed up in that previous fight we saw. Um, meanwhile, back on the top of the mountain, they're burying Sumner, which I imagine is pretty hard to do in Antarctica. Frozen ground. Frozen ground. Yeah. <laughs> kind of tough. Um, Lake does not care. He's, like, looking at all this like all the hieroglyphics and the city and whatnot. And we have a little scene here, Becca. Yes. They were scientists like us, only more so their minds were creative and hungry. They landed here and built all this, or more accurately, they had it built for them. Look. A second race, a slave race, beasts of burden. Consults the Necronomicon. Shagoths. If we are to believe this, hold on, page turning. turn. If we are to believe this, <laughs> mutable creatures bred to perform any tasks. If they need extra arms, eyes, fingers, mouths, they grew them. They were capable of mimicking any form of life down to the smallest detail. Now here you can see the writing, the craftsmanship changing here, right here on this wall. These beasts rebelled against their masters. A war ensued. These are now their pictograms, their story. A war? These Shagas worshipped an ancient deity, a creature so malevolent that even the old ones were afraid. They reached the top of the rampart. Lake points out to a plaza below. At the center of the plaza, carved out of a natural pillar a hundred feet high, a statue of a primordial creature, Cthulhu, a wild... Conjuries, oh, wild conjuries of tentacles, claws, and wings, and the outcome of the war. In time, we'll know. So there's all sorts of crazy stuff up there. Uh, <laughs> Lake is really good at just deciphering all this stuff I using know. the Necronomicon. He's just looking at hieroglyphs written by an ancient species, and suddenly he's like, "Oh, the Shagas. Well, they could they could grow eyeballs, and yeah. they overthrew their masters, but then they worshipped this guy. It was like oh, he he was amazing at it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's why he's the head of the mission. Uh, meanwhile, back on the ship, there's a cool scene of. Uh, Gunnarsson's in the infirmary, uh, plus a bunch of other people who got, you know, unimportant red shirt characters who got hurt in the crash. <laughs> um, when Gunnarsson kind of springs to life monstery style, his hands sprout tentacles, which enter the a guy next to him's nose and ears and just kind of like absorb his whole face. Um, Gunnarsson kind of grow, goes on a little rampage here. He attacks the other sailors and the captain. Uh, Fowler and Dyer are preparing to further dissect the old ones, as the script calls the creatures that were inside the sarcophagi. Um, Fowler calls the captain on the radio, and then over the radio we get a thing that was very prevalent in the story, which are the words, Tequilili! Tequilili! <laughs> I'm not sure. That sounds so lovely and silly to me. I'm sure that Del Toro would have found a way to make that scary, though. Um, and the suggestion is that they spoke with musical notes. It's yeah, supposed to be some kind of piping sound. Piping sounds, yeah. um, which I'm, I'm sure he also would have figured out how to make scary. It sounds kind of adorable when you just think I about know. them being like, oh, oh, oh they're like, <laughs> singing at me. They're like gizmos. Um, <laughs> and uh, so the old ones now, all the like dead old ones, as that earlier scene where it heals itself kind of implied, are coming back to life and they just start fucking shit up. Um, Dyer flees the ship. Um, there's a bunch more cool stuff of Gunnarsson. Basically, it seems like the way 
Um, and I, I'm not sure how obvious it is from our description of it, but Gunnarsson is like a different thing than the like old ones who are mm-hmm. in the obelisks. He's mm-hmm. more of like a the thing style mm-hmm. oozy creature who can just keep like absorbing and taking over other things and changing his hands into whatever he wants. A little bit like uh, the creature Leviathan. in Leviathan that yeah. we talked about on That's what I re- it Becca's reminded me podcast. of because they um they kept talking about how they were becoming fused and you could see multiple faces and then one face and mm-hmm. um it was very descriptive in how it was kind of just this infusion of bodies and that's all I could picture was the Leviathan creature. Mm-hmm. Um Let's see. Oh, well, the one cool thing is that the, the old ones that um, they are dice, they're dissecting uh, Fowler alive. Oh, right. Yeah. Which I think is pretty. They've become the scientists now. They're like, oh, yes. you want to dissect us? Well, we're going to dissect you. Which seems crazy because all this insanity is going on around them and they've been asleep for millennium. But the <laughs> fact that they can be like, oh, well, you with the scalpel, let's meticulously torture you now. <laughs> I, I did want to mention also, uh, I'm sure you guys all caught it, but there's literally like a, a wipe in Hellboy 2 where they're walking down the corridor and we see the uh, the original story's um, elder thing waking up scene where oh, it wakes really? up and it starts freaking out and attacking <laughs> people. And I it's did like, not see oh, wow. yeah, yeah, It's literally like two or three seconds and suddenly that. there's an elder oh, wow. thing on the table throwing its tentacles around and attacking people and they're just walking down the hall Wow! in uh, the vault of, of monsters. Oh, wow, that's... And by really the way, cool. during all this is a snowstorm also, right? Yeah, and like, uh, I'll kind of gloss over some of this stuff because okay. I mean, it wouldn't be repetitive if you were watching it, but it's maybe repetitive to just explain this way. Um, but Dyer escapes and he gets rescued by Larson, who is still alive. And Larson had kind of discovered this cave where they can hide out. And Larson's also realized that these creatures don't like salt, which is maybe helps explain how they're trapped on uh, Antarctica. Um so if you blast them with some salt, they'll like shrivel up and die. Um, and that's all—that's the thing creatures, the Shoggoths. The Shoggoths, yeah. Like mm-hmm. the salt, because interesting in the book, uh, the 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 elder ones, they were preserved in salt. So I was wondering if that's where they took it from. I thought that was interesting. Mm. Yeah, and they they note um, parts that like the elder things, what they are kept in in these obelisks is like a super high salt concentration, mm. which presumably kept the Shagoths from fucking with them while they were kind of trapped in there. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> All comes together. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a gruesome suggestion in the story when they come upon the camp and they find a bunch of gutted and dissected people with salt all over the place, mm-hmm. like they've salted the meat, mm. is the suggestion <laughs> in the story. <laughs> um, let's see, you're kind of skimming through a bit. Uh, the remaining scientists uh, encountered Dan... Oh, the other scientists uh, finally get in the ship. They leave Lake and one guy behind because he's just like, I don't, you know, we got to go back, check on the boat. What our second plane got fucked up so we need extra fuel to get us back down to the boat unaware that all this horrible stuff has been happening with the Shagas down back at the Arkham um, the guys land as they're landing just all the crew members are just standing there motionless kind of like the penguins were mm. basically just like waiting for them to arrive uh, they see Danforth and Atwood um, let's see la 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 yeah, just everybody starts getting attacked. Shit's going down. Back of the dead city, Lake is 
making him and the other guy explore. They entered the structure and find fossils of dinosaurs displayed, but also mammals too. They marvel it would take hundreds of millions of years to... Uh... Oh, wait, sorry, I screwed that part up. Anyway, they, they find like all these displayed, like we would have in like a natural history museum. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they realize that, like as Lake noted, they're classified insects, mammals, reptiles, birds. He consults the Necronomicon. These beings... On the first day, created the birds, and on the second day, they created the fish and the animals that inhabit the sea. And then they come across a human skeleton. Dun dun dun! They made us. <laughs> uh, it seems like the old ones may have created all life on Earth. Um, yeah, they, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, they find dinosaur bones, everything. So that's really cool. Yeah, I think that been... Uh, especially knowing how Del Toro would have done it and his detail to what all mm-hmm. these like weird things would have mm-hmm. looked like. Uh, as they're moving further, they're realizing that it keeps getting hotter and hotter as they get deeper and deeper into the building they're inside. Um, they find a broken machine with an energy field around it, and the debris is just kind of like hovering in midair. Uh, one of the guys like sticks his hand in, and it says his hand shrivels before his eyes. He's sucked inward, his body drying up as it is vacuumed from within. Um, and then I uh, maybe skip ahead a page to that Jesse to the big blocking scene. Oh, okay, have you read? But then Lake walks under. There's like this floating sphere in the room, and it blasts him on the head with light. Um, it's the next page, Jesse. We're gonna skip this. Okay. Yeah, let's skip that. Images come in rapid succession. The old ones creating life in a strange room using glassy receptacles charged with electricity and liquids. Alien alchemy at work. Bones and muscles weave and intertwine in each receptacle, forming fish, fowl, mammals. Then a faint otherworldly clamor reaches Lake's ears, a chorus of 10,000 voices. He finds himself gazing over the alien city in its moment of glory. Gleaming spires, ziggurats, temples. Even the mountains look new and majestic. The lower slopes are covered in green jungle. The skies are alive with soaring star-headed creatures gliding in majestic formation, peeling out from behind radiant golden clouds, down, down, into a maelstrom of war. The broad, smoke-filled causeways of the city are covered with surging agglutinations of slime, which fling up long tentacles to ensnare the winged aliens and pull them in, and wrap hungry orifices over their wriggling, helpless bodies. The shuggoths decapitate the old ones. Underwater, the stone coffins splash down, away from the reach of the shuggoths. As they bob gently in the water, camera comes up, the Distant mountains are in flames. On the horizon, amidst columns of smoke, a massive thing as tall as the mountains seems to undulate as it rises. Uh, so basically, Lake realized now he finally stops being such a jerk, and he's mm. kind of like, "Oh crap! The Shagoths are trying to raise this giant horrible thing, Cthulhu." It's like we need to get out of here, you guys. Uh, it's kind of a funny little bit. Uh, maybe it's not supposed to be funny. It, Seemed funny in my mind where Paybody's just like, yeah, crazy, and he's talking, and he basically gets Sam Jackson from Deep Blue Sea by a Shaga. <laughs> um, Shagas attack everyone, including Lake. Uh, we cut back down to the guys uh, by the Arkham. Um, most of them are dead, Dyer uh, and Larson. They realize like they need to get the ship free from the ice and they just need to get out of here and they can't let any of these things go with them uh because you know it's like once at sea these beings will spread to infect the world oh yeah that was a detail they realized that the shagas are actually trying to get the boat out themselves 
Um, so there's kind of a race to see who can do that first. Um, another little scene here. We're going to have Jesse take over the role of Lake now that he has been monsterized. But Atwood, the religious guy, runs into his room to get his Bible and he encounters um, Lake. Oh, are you someone going to read Atwood? Uh, yeah. Hold on just okay. a sec. Uh, we'll just start with that Atwood line. Atwood. He utters the name as if it were an unfamiliar memory. Lake is here with us. He wants you to know that it was them, the old ones, who brought life to this planet, not your God. The lake thing shimmers and glides up to Atwood. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <laughs> they created life many times on many worlds. First out of hunger, then out of boredom they created men yes they made you a house pet and gave you doubts and fears and hopes and faith it made you more entertaining to watch like a puppy chasing its tail tentacles envelope atwood in a smothering embrace Go on, little man. Finish your prayer. You know that no one is listening. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's it's uh, a horrible death for Atwater because he's religious and he's been fighting with this lake guy about about beliefs. And now mm -hmm. at the ending, he's being proven wrong while being like, like assimilated by this by his worst enemy by his nemesis yeah it's a really really bleak moment I mean the film just gets kind of bleaker from there um, but this was definitely like the climax of the bleak yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, we get to our big action climax where uh, they successfully blow up this like little ice isthmus that the ship was uh, trapped in mm-hmm. um, Dyer and Danforth managed to get onto the Arkham um, they're kind of fighting with some Shagas, and then meanwhile they realize there's some Shagas who are back on land who are using corpses of the old ones in some kind of ritual, and like clouds are gathering above the mountains, and that's when Danforth and Dyer look back as up from behind the mountain range comes a heaving titan, Cthulhu. It towers in the darkness, shifting and swaying. Its membrous wings extend, filling the horizon, its abominable head silhouetted by lightning in the clouds. Um, and so there's kind of this whole cool thing where like Cthulhu is basically coming after him. He's arriving. Cthulhu looms over the ship, black against the starry sky. The creature squeezes the vessel, bending the steel plates, popping rivets. It plucks the Arkham from the water and cracks it like a boiled egg. Dozens of fleshy organs explode in the mess hall and cabins and the bridge. Uh, and then he like throws the boat and they basically get away. They manage to kill like all the other stuff. We don't know what happens to Cthulhu. He's just kind of back there yep. hanging out. Um, and then kind of the cool bit is that, like, 
uh, Danforth gets infected, and he's basically, you got to kill me, Dyer. And then Dyer kills him, and then almost immediately hears people trying to break in, which he assumes are more Shoggoths. But then when they break in, it's the Australian sailors from the beginning. You realize that, like, seconds have passed from when he was, like, drifting out at sea. Um, and then we finish things back up with the bookends of stark weather there uh it's kind of a fun little fake out where it seems like he believes dyer and then he's just basically like you're a fucking crazy dude you murdered everybody on your exposition and the council <laughs> british council shows up and he's like stark weather you need to leave immediately and he's like cool and so they sail back to antarctica and they find you know the remnants of all the stuff we just watched in the movie but there's like nothing else really around uh, and then Starkweather uh, suddenly turns around and all his dudes are gone and he's there all alone and then he sees coming towards him a hooded figure who's you know the dark man that mm. Dyer kept seeing in his dreams um, and then I think yeah I think it just fades out we don't even know what happens and it closes with a quote from Revelations which is at the end of days will come a man that walks like a man looks like a man but is not a man the end Woo. <laughs> what do we think I mean you know, this is one of those like I have my fan hat and then my like movie executive mm. hat and that's it exactly because I would not I give Del Toro 150 million dollars no to make this movie I, I would love to watch that movie yes but yeah I, I feel exactly the same I love the script it was a great read I had a blast with it I would love to watch this movie but if I am a movie executive going what is going to make every single person in America go see this movie from 16 year olds to 80 year olds your mom's talking about it and your teenagers are talking about it I would not go with this because when you get into movies like that it's always like this character is good and this character is bad and that tends to be where we have especially in horror La Llorona bad everyone else in movie good yeah. <laughs> and that's just where we are and so when this gets into Shagaths which take on multiple forms so I'm like are they the creatures are they those thing things are they the pseudopods then we've got the old ones who we think are good because they were you know they created man but now they're fucking shit up too and then we have Cthulhu show up and then the dark man there is so many weird different um, parties at work here that there's not really anyone to cheer for. There's just a lot of political strife. And I couldn't even tell you, like, I can tell you what some of their end games are, but a lot of it's really murky. Like, I don't even know what the Dark Man is or why he's that's there or the, what he's doing. That's the one element in the script that I don't, I'm, I'm confused mm -hmm. what was really supposed to be. Because that's kind of positioned as almost worse than Cthulhu. Yeah. Like, that's the real problem. That could be removed from this, probably. Not to, you know disrespect the anything setup for part two yeah because yeah. it, it just doesn't seem like it needs it because like no. as becca says there's so much going on but we lose <laughs> a lot too because i mean like cthulhu shows up and he's like oh you guys were like fighting with your pseudopod tentacles i'm gonna just lift the ship up out of the water but yet somehow they still sail away and what happened to cthulhu did he just like oh i'm gonna lie waiting here for a while longer yeah. bring some more ships i guess i'll just hang out yeah it's cool <laughs> guys so yeah that was i i had questions about where cthulhu went and if they have brought him back couldn't he be like well i'm gonna walk to australia and mess up shit there now yeah um so kind of where he went was confusing and as a studio executive I would want um, kind of the biology of the creatures to be really clear. 
Um, and I have no idea what is up with those Chagas. I mean, they're awesome. And I love that they can take on any form. But like when they're attacking people, they're described as almost more kind of dog-like. Like you really do feel like it's a pack of beasts. But then they can also be just single little pods of protoplasm and then they mutate people like it's from an executive standpoint that would be like my biggest note is like we need to clean this up well i think that's inherent problem too when a movie is this expensive needing to be the kind of broad film it is is that's just not lovecraftian Mm -mm. like not in any capacity uh, if anything i always thought lovecraft maybe over explained his own stuff like he kind of didn't stick to his normal formula when speaking of the shagas to me also executive hat on like I, this would still be a cool movie if you could figure out how to do it for like 20 million but it also has the problem actually going back to bring up john carter of mars same problem that movie had is, is this story was so influential that it's really been ripped off endlessly <laughs> since i mean including i think it's funny i just learned this detail i was amazed i didn't know before because the thing that this has, that Mountains of Madness has the most similarity to, obviously, is The Thing, which is based mm-hmm. on a short story called Who Goes There, written by John W. Campbell, uh, who was the editor of Astounding Stories, <laughs> the oh, magazine wow. that published at the Mountains of Madness. Um, and Who Goes There came out and was also in Astounding Stories two years after mountains came out oh, so dude. i think lovecraft is dead by that point. yeah, yeah. you so have just discovered a lawsuit that <laughs> yeah, lovecraft exactly. wished he knew about yeah. um well, but it's... but so like and then especially john carpenter's the thing but even like alien versus predator has so much the idea of like you go to antarctica and find this temple and then you get caught in the middle hmm. of these two creatures warring against each other like well, that was, said, well and that's recently. what you were going to bring up right steve del Torre even said himself about oh, prometheus yeah he said prometheus started filming a while ago right at that time when we were in production on pre-production on pacific rim the title itself gave me pause knowing that alien was heavily influenced by lovecraft and his novel mm-hmm. this time decades later with the budget and and Ridley Scott occupied, I assume the Greek metaphor alluded at the creation aspects of the H.P. Lovecraft book. I believe I am in the right, and if so, as a fan, I am delighted to see a new Ridley Scott science fiction film, but this will probably mark a long pause, if not the demise of At the Mountains of Madness. I mean, because I guess in one way, those obelisk obelisk things, they could kind of resemble the, those urns. Mm-hmm. And then the, the engineers created us. And so the old ones created us. But I don't see this as like when we discussed on your podcast, Dante's Peak, Volcano, Mm -hmm. all the body switching. Like those were obvious. Like this is just I don't know. I don't see it as such a remake of Prometheus. Yeah, I don't see the two of them as being connected or it's just more coincidental that it was about the creation of man. Um, Because, yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, we we've seen throughout history where these like we'll see these little capsules of a whole bunch of similar films being made like Armageddon Deep Impact. Um, but this doesn't feel like that in any capacity. They may have had the same source material, so they slightly resemble each other, but they went in two very different directions. Yeah. I think the thing would be the thing. Mm. The thing would be the thing. The thing is the thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that, well, that would people, just because of the snowy setting, and if you're going to do a monster that can grow weird tentacles and become any shape it wants and then take over other people and make them a monster too. Uh, Well, as you were just saying, what's interesting is Mountains comes out, then 
the book, Who Goes There? And then they make The Thing from Another World. Mm-hmm. John Carpenter remakes that as The Thing, and him and Rob Boutin create these morphing, assimilating creatures. And now those make it way into Mountains of Madness, the script, which is like, yeah, it's like the circle back. Yeah, totally is. Because the creature in the original Thing movie was made out of, was a vegetable Yeah, creature. it was a plant. Yeah, which I find that sequence so fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's my favorite part of that movie. And then John Carpenter remakes it and turns it into, you know, totally creates like a new creature that makes its way into this. I find Which that so feels fascinating. Lovecraftian. And I mean, yes. like once you read uh, Mountains of Madness and some of his other things where it talks about how the Shagas could change shape and mutate, it really does feel like that to begin with. So everybody's just kind of influencing everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and especially because they never made this into mm-hmm. a movie. People can just pluck what they want from it. And it's it. public domain. Yeah. And one of the, I, I think one of the general structural problems adapting Lovecraft to any kind of modern film filmmaking is the fact that it's so rife with moral ambiguity. Mm-hmm. There's there's nobody to root for. The elder things are neutral. The shuggaths are probably chaotic evil, right? And so and the humans don't come off all that well and there's usually never a happy ending. Um, one thing I didn't realize coming to this script is how much of it, it really is a composite of Mountains of Madness and Call of Cthulhu mm-hmm. because almost all of the stuff on the ship has nothing to do with the original Mountains of Madness story. It's really from Call from of Cthulhu. Cthulhu. And it, even the climax, pulling him in there. like he, He's mentioned in the Mountains of Madness story, but he's not there. Really, is somewhere mm-hmm. else. Um, and, and, just, and the climax and him lifting up the boat, that's all straight from that story. But I, I also wanted to ask, maybe you guys know about this, because I remember st- I, reading about, you know, I think all of Lovecraft is public domain now because his yeah. estate was left basically abandoned. But I think Del Toro made some deal to buy rights from whoever represents his interests. Oh, he doesn't, for madness? Yeah, so no for this. Can do it. Uh, right. And so whoever represents, he doesn't have any direct descendants, but whoever represents his family estate, such as it oh, is, they wow. made some kind of deal. Um, I should also but, note, too, uh, that we maybe don't note enough on the podcast. Uh, the script we have, actually, usually there's a date on it. This doesn't have a date. He's been trying to make this so long. He's There's probably other drafts mm-hmm. of this where he maybe... Because I think at some point I even read that he he eventually caved in and was like, okay, we can do it for PG-13. I don't know how that really affected the story. Yeah, there's... The, yeah. the only thing that I could see being really downsized in this is a little bit of the gore. But, I mean, you can even push that in PG-13 far more than you can, like, language and sexuality. And there is no language or sexuality in this entire no. thing. So that just means it's the gore. Um, so I, I'd be interested to see, like, what the studio considered to be an R-rated level of gore versus a PG-13 gore. Because most of what we're seeing here that I would mm-hmm. call gore is, like, creature effects, mm-hmm. which I consider, like, if you tie somebody to a chair and, like, sandblast his knees for an hour, I'll call that saw level of R rating. But if tentacles grow from somebody, is that considered R? I'm, I'm curious what the studio is, how they would classify it. Yeah, don't forget, too, like, this was 2012, so it's seven years ago, and mm-hmm. now TV has has become oh, so much Hannibal more violent. Was, I can't <laughs> so, that was I mean, I guess by today's standards, it could probably get away more than it could have before. Well, and didn't yeah. you didn't you find that interview with Del Toro talking about a different ending? Yeah, he did say in an interview that this script could have been four drafts ago because the studio wanted Cthulhu in it, and he wasn't sure if he wanted to put Cthulhu, he put it in for the studio, and so it changed studios. It was vague when the interview took place, so this could be, you know, yeah. so he could have totally rewritten most of this since that interview as well. I felt well. that way, too, that I, 
I was surprised that Del Toro went there, so it was mm-hmm. not shocking to learn that the studio was like, everybody loves Cthulhu. You got to yeah. put Cthulhu in. <laughs> I think Which so. then raises the question, though, like, Becca, you said, it's like, well, usually you're trying to stop the summoning of Cthulhu, because once you successfully summon him, the world jig ends. is up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like, there's nothing left. Cthulhu is waiting, and as soon as he is no longer, or lying sleeping, how do they word it in the novel, and as soon as he is no longer lying <laughs> sleeping... You know, your shit's fucked yeah, up just, and you, you can't undo Cthulhu. Binging mm-hmm. Netflix down in Antarctica. Well, hanging I, I, out. I wondered the timing also if since this draft that the Call of Cthulhu feature was made because I think it's been pretty much made definitively. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd love to see someone else do it, mm-hmm. but did you did you see the black and white Call I of Cthulhu? I did. There was a couple of Cthulhu movies yeah. that came out kind of back to back. There was the one um, which had Tori Spelling in it um, oh, which don't let that don't stop you it was it. actually it was an interesting interpretation um, it was uh, probably about the same time I want to say like right. mid 2000s and it was about um, a guy returning to his hometown um, and I think it was the Pacific Northwest in this story he was returning to his hometown and you get that he's been kind of estranged from his family because they're in some type of weird fish cult um, that does sacrifices and he's also gay in it so it adds a whole s- another subtext hmm. of like being re- repelled by yeah. your family and then he goes there and you realize that the cult that they are in is Cthulhu and that they are literally trying to sacrifice people to bring him back and you never actually th- see Cthulhu in it but out of all of the hmm. interpretations it's one that I considered the most effective because because it used the mythos without bringing giant wing tentacle god in at the end, which I question when I read this and when I knew that Del Toro was doing this, I always question if you would be able to pull off Cthulhu successfully in a film as a scary creature now because we've had so many different interpretations of and him people at this have point. like Cthulhu plushies. I know, I have a stuffed like... animal. I had a little day. It was um literally like a calendar, like day a comic calendar called Lil Cthulhu. And it was like Cthulhu <laughs> picking flowers and eating things and you know drinking tea that was made of the blood of humans and mm-hmm. yeah but i mean we've we've seen him everywhere now mm-hmm. um so many different role playing games have been done about this and video games at this point so i'm curious now if he was to appear as this like giant continent sized deity in a film like what would you have to do to make him scary again it is funny just showing him so blatantly because I think the book ends with uh, not Dyer maybe the other guy he's on a plane with turns around and looks up at something and in classic Lovecraftian fashion it like immediately destroys his brain and mm-hmm. he can't even like describe what he saw and so the idea was just that there was something else even worse mm-hmm. lurking like past the, even more uh, evil the city yeah the, the mountains that the elder things feared. Yeah, no, I did want to mention also because Becca re- referenced the fact that there were two coming out. I, I love the black and white German expressionist style. Mm-hmm. Um, H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society film. Did you did you see it? It's um, no, it it's no, great. it's a fe- yeah, it's short. It's like six, it's, 60, 70 yeah. minutes, but they did a beautiful job, and that it was it's kind of an elegant solution to just put it in period with the kind of look and techniques and effects that you would get from that time. It does feel like if Lovecraft, if somebody had scooped up the rights like right then in the 1930s and decided to film it, what it would have looked like. Like, As a silent, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it definitely did not have like, I'll call it like a commercial ability, like no marketability, but it it definitely um, had a lot of respect within horror fans. Yeah, they do beautiful work. They did another uh, uh, color out of space. They've done mm-hmm. some really excellent features and, well, and now a lot of radio I think stuff. We're finally getting Richard Stanley's yes. color out of space, I which wait. I'm intrigued to see. Oh, I mean, if, wow. if anyone's mad enough to yeah. properly translate. <laughs> 
It's been a few Lovecraft. years. Yeah. Yeah. He's been working on it. There was, there was a good German one that I saw. Yeah, really there was good German also one, one um, that came out probably also about mid 2000s that had Debbie Rashawn in it. Wow. Um, which, yeah, and it felt really, um, I remember thinking of it as kind of low budget when I first saw the marketing for it, but it's remarkable. It, it was remarkably good um where it was set on a farm and they unearth something from their well and then kind of shit gets crazy but most of it's embodied inside of debbie um her character she's the wife in it and that one um was was reasonably decent i remember enjoying it they're going down the color out of space rabbit hole i did a reading a few years ago i think it might have been the last lovecraft film festival here in la because they just do them up in portland now um of an excellent uh, theatrical play version of the story by Graham Skipper of all oh. people oh. and he did a beautiful adaptation and brought in some stuff I think I was reading Nier Lathotep who's not in the story but it's nice having a talking demonic creature just to kind of help you in they Osmodiar really fashion story. Yeah. Yeah. talking right. demonic <laughs> creatures <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like the Greek chorus it uh, and for <laughs> listeners Graham Skipper played Herbert West in Reanimator the Musical and was also the guest on our very first episode and of Best Movies and he was in my movie yeah. All the Creatures Were Stirring everybody's yes, in there yes, was yes, I in yes, your yes. movie? <laughs> I know basically most people were um, had a big cast also the curse is that based on it the Will Wheaton movie on the farm oh, that's Color Out of Space is yeah. that, that is Color Out of Space Yeah. directed by David Keith the actor oh wow not to be confused with Keith David. Has a yes, it has a cool ending though. With, mm-hmm. it, um, it's a pretty this. big budget for. It's like a yeah. It's a, not a pretty big budget. It's a low budget where it's impressive what they pulled off, and the effects were from Italians. So there's lots of maggots and stuff, which I love. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, just, that has yeah. like it adds Very like Fulci. yeah <laughs> yeah. So it's like an '80s horror movie. But it has Italian 80s effects. And that's I, I, I kind of dig that yeah, film. Yeah, it's a tight little horror film. I liked yeah. that one. I, well, I wanted to give some love to other, because I didn't get a chance to answer about other Lovecraft films that have successfully approached these stories. You know, Stuart turned me on. He, I asked him at one point, what do you think the best Lovecraft film is? And he said, The Resurrected. Oh, well, but, Dan O'Bannon. Oh, which is an interesting choice, interesting right? Choice. Which I love. It's an interesting... Yeah. It, has anyone here seen... I know his wife Dan has it. His, like... Kind of assembly yeah. cut, director's cut of the Resurrected, because that was a movie that got taken away from him, I believe. No, it played no, at the Egyptian. It, did it? Oh. And I missed it, and it bums me out. <laughs> I would love to see that. It played once. Well, I never thought we were going to get the Nightbreed Cabal cut. So at this point, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and some people I hold have pointed out, out like I, I, Reanimator is such a master. Reanimator for me was like the come to Jesus moment, both for horror and for Lovecraft in mm-hmm. cinema. But some people would suggest that From Beyond is a better Lovecraft. I think movie. it is. I, I mean, think it is. Reanimator is one of my favorite horror movies of all time, but it's not very, I mean, Lovecraft it's, wasn't It's funny atypical for Lovecraft, for too. Thing. It's really not like his other stories. Yeah, yeah, Reanimator, it feels um, palatable to kind of a more mainstream mm. audience. I think a lot of Lovecraft doesn't, and that makes That's a true. lot of his interpretations problematic. Is from beyond, okay, now we've got this weird device that n- increases the size of your path thalamus gland is that right it's some gland in your head um and so like your your hypothalamus or something like that is growing pineal pineal, pineal. gland ah, there you go. um so you now your pineal gland is growing almost phallic and it makes you go to the other side but you can see things and then it gets hypersexual at some points like there's a lot in that that makes it not a vanilla, vanilla cut and paste horror film mm-hmm. and the ones that he did for the masters of horror i think mm. the same thing happened dreams of the witch house is one of my 
favorite Lovecraft stories. But when you try to bring that to screen, suddenly you have a time-traveling witch who travels through Mm -hmm. architecture in ceilings and a rat with a human face. And neither of those really translated to screen that well. Um, so, yeah, I think. But, and just, and more just, of a radio story, really. Yeah, and they just don't feel um, kind of commercial, the whole idea of time traveling yeah. witches. I'm kind of like, well, you lost me there. But as a story, it's awesome. Well, I think that's why sometimes making the film's period piece helps you achieve that tone. Because mm-hmm. it's so long ago that there is kind of like a gothic quality to his writing still. Whereas I would say that like... Clive Barker, being very modern, has a lot of the same tropes because he loves mm-hmm. having his characters like meet some god and go crazy. Mm-hmm. The difference is that his involve a lot more bodily fluids and sex and whatnot. But like the Cenobites is part of kind of the problem of what happened with the Hellraiser franchise is what made them so cool in the first movies. That you don't really know anything about them. Mm-hmm. They kind of mm. they just sort of come in and they're really objective to what's going on and you don't really know what their world is like and then once you show their world you're kind of like oh so they're just from yeah some weird dimension intergalactic yeah. travelers yeah. but yeah and by like part two it started getting like you learn the political system of like <laughs> leviathan has ocd and you know pinhead has like a post-war traumatic stress <laughs> disorder and everybody gets like All a backstory then and it yeah it gets a little um the mystique dissolves away i still love it but yeah it lost I love a some bit. of the earlier lovecraft adaptations too probably the first one that's credited is the haunted palace mm-hmm. which isn't even called a lovecraft film they call it a poe oh, story yeah, which yeah. is one of the, crazy one of the Vincent Price Pose cycle. Yeah, was movies. it Sam Arkoff or, or I forget who made it with it's just, it's just a wonderful Vincent Price uh, adaptation of the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Mm-hmm. Um, they play fast and loose with the story. And I also love Dean Stockwell in the in the Dunwich Horror. The Dunwich you know? Horror I always loved because mm-hmm. it is um it, it just it feels more traditional Lovecraft for me. Like I always loved that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well I'm a big fan really quick of the Brian Usna anthology. Necromonica. Oh, Necronomica, yeah, which he so just good. wants us to show. Yeah, by the he way. just found out <laughs> oh, his nice. 35 millimeter print. Yeah, Is a, that that still has not had a schnazzy updated release, right? No, I still have I think my VHS. Weird rights issues yeah, with it yeah. as oh. part of the problem. Um, well, maybe wrapping things up, going back to the idea that Prometheus killed this, I would say no offense to Prometheus fans, but I, you know, who cares Mm-mm. about Prometheus? <laughs> uh, they made a sequel, but I don't know that that movie's going to have a particularly strong legacy. Uh, I think Del Toro should do it. He should oh, bring absolutely. his budget way, way, way down unless he wants this to be the movie that finally implodes his career or something. Yeah. I think um, that this one would do much better with a um, a lesser known cast. Like, yeah, it's Tom Cruise and I'm sure he will put butts in seats, but I think that using some more classical actors would definitely mm-hmm. help in this. And even though I love watching Chagas explode till, you know, the end of time, um, I do think that if we downsize the effects a bit, it might make them more impactful when they do happen because mm-hmm. it feels like literally from like the 50 page mark to the end it's nothing but tentacles flying everywhere um so maybe go like a thing model where you're kind of picking Mm -hmm. and choosing your crazy Mm -hmm. effects and then everyone remembers the spider head for the rest of time Mm -hmm. well there's a real economy of horror in the story too Mm is no more than five percent of it is actual critters Mm -hmm. it's all just the guys having the experience of going to this place 
you know. It's also so, I mean, Del Toro and Matthew Robbins did a phenomenal job writing it. I'm shocked at yeah, how much they explained in so little mm-hmm. sentences. Like, it's next to what we read for Johnny Quest. This is, like, a phenomenal script. Yeah. Great yeah. read. Very good. No, and it definitely, like, it does give mad applause to Lovecraft. Like, it, mm-hmm. they clearly love him and everything that he does because they included everything that they could possibly fit in. There's some basic plausibility issues in the story that they kind of just gloss over in the script, too. It's like, those those ships are supposed to show up with four airplanes they assemble there that are going to take off there and then just land on the ice somewhere. Yeah. It's like, how is that? I don't think that was possible in 1930 or today, you know? <laughs> it's like, suddenly we'll just see, we'll just cut to completed plane, you know? Hey, Miskatonic U had a, <laughs> a great aeronautics department. <laughs> Um, well, thank you so much, oh, Jesse and Becca. Where thank can people you. find you online? I am on um, all of the socials as Rebecca McKendry. So <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, possibly even Snapchat, though I don't update it, all under Rebecca McKendry. Well, I was going to say, um, this probably won't air this episode until like July or something. So oh, okay. how will people find... Uh, the Lifetime movie at that point. It will probably be on Lifetime streaming service by that okay. point. Um, so yeah, we air on Lifetime on May 18th, and then it'll probably be on the streaming services. Psycho Granny. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Jesse, how can they find you on yeah, social? Hopefully the latest picture I have a little cameo and we'll be doing the circuit by then. I've got a role in Joe Bigos' new film, Bliss, nice. that just hit uh, Tribeca and did really well. Another splattery 16 millimeter uh, gore gore fiesta. You're at, a real slime ball in that uh, You're great in Oh, it, did you way. see it? Oh, yeah. yeah, I oh. love it. Joe showed it to us. Oh, good. I like gore fiesta. It's nice having a nice having a category, you know. Yeah. Um, it's just like, oh yeah, I thought of you for the role, and we made it more sleazy. It's like, oh great, thank you, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm uh, jessemerlin.com. I'm jesse underscore merlin on Instagram and just jesse merlin on Twitter. And um, and yes, hopefully at some, I, who knows when, but there is some deal out there. We made the reanimated the musical soundtrack three years ago, and I'm very impatient mm-hmm. to hear it. Hopefully, it will be coming out this year. Uh, and Steve and I are both on the socials. Uh, his name is much easier to search for than mine. Sorry. Uh, but you can find Best Movies Never Made on Instagram, and we are on Twitter as Never Made Film. Uh, so thanks for joining us on Best Movies Never Made. And if you're a fan of this podcast, you may want to check out Electric Surge's other podcasts, like the 430 Movie, every Friday, in which a group of writers and producers curate fantasy theme weeks of classic movies. And Inglorious Trexperts, the only podcast for Star Trek fans with a life available every saturday wherever you listen to podcasts also a very special thanks to bill ritter and everyone here at electric surge electric surge network including our producers dean devlin and mark a altman so until next time this is steven scarlatta and i'm josh miller saying we won't see you at the movies This podcast is a production of the Electric Surge Network.